Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome fellow time travelers. It's always great to have you with me. And here we are again, traveling through space and time together. Thanks to everyone who signed up to my Patreon site. Here's how it works. It's a subscription site. You join up, pay some money, and you become a member of a little club. Uh, A little club that's getting bigger every day. You get access via Patreon to other rewards, exclusive content. Um, Every week, Paul and I shoot a new vodcast. Uh, We run competitions. More recently, we've been giving members the chance to suggest topics for a special podcast, and we'll be making the first of those very soon. So it's a community that's growing all the time, and... It'd be great to have you aboard. To join, simply go to patreon.com, search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and follow the yellow brick road. Follow the rules, join up. Okay, now it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine for the next episode of my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. That's the singularity, that's the point beyond which you cannot pass that there's nothing before it, and nothing caused it. It's just there. Growing up in a huge, walled garden, protected and sheltered from the harsh realities of the world beyond. Fleeing and witnessing suffering and death. Finding the middle way and the Bodhi tree. No easy claim on goodness or ready blame for badness. Awakening to the nature of reality and the search for nirvana. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil, in the last episode we walked with the legendary heroes of ancient Greece. Where are we this week? Morning Paul, yes last week we saw history and literature being wrapped up together. Uh, in wonderful words that give us stories that, despite being thousands of years old, still touch us today. This week, though, we're heading to Nepal uh, and a man who would have a profound impact on the people of the world into which he was born. He was Siddhartha Gautama. It's the birth of the Buddha. We're more or less in... uh, Morning, Paul. We're more or less in... Northern India, uh, maybe the territory that we know as Nepal, but we're back in that elephant's ear, that Indian elephant's ear of India. 
Do you remember? I don't know if they still do, but for a while in, in Marks and Spencers, they sold Buddha bowls. There was a sort of a range of, uh, of I suppose, to, to be described lightly as Asian food. And it was a, it was a brand anyway, Buddha. Uh, and I was thinking about it because today's moment in history concerns the awakening, the awakening of Siddhartha Gautama, who was the man who would be Buddha. And I am interested by the kind of jolly, light-hearted impression that I think some of us in the West have of Buddha. You know that ever-present little statuette that people have, often often very high-gloss china porcelain or, or rendered in some or other fashion of a very plump, very jolly-looking figure, quite often surrounded by cherubic children. And you're supposed to rub Buddha's tummy for good luck and all that kind of thing. It's all very happy-go-lucky, and you know I don't think we maybe imbue it with anything like the the seriousness that that maybe Buddha and Buddhism ought to have. We do have Buddha bars everywhere as well, don't you? Yeah, yeah. It's it just seems to be a name. Maybe it's just a nice word to say. Uh, but I think perhaps in the West we associate Buddha with kind of um, plump contentment. And maybe that's a selling point. However, over the over the last few weeks, the moments in the story of the world have come out of India. Uh, we've considered Hinduism, uh, which, well, it's much more than a religion. It's a it's a whole foundation for a way of life. It's a culture. It's even more than a culture, uh, but it's it it has within it foundational thinking that shaped Indian culture, continues to shape Indian culture, and in part. It's many things, but in part, Hinduism is a quest for understanding about the nature of reality. It dives down deep, Hinduism. We've spoken in the past, you and I, about the Rig Veda, uh, which are, well, what are they? A thousand hymns, a thousand and more hymns that were first of all committed to memory and passed down orally, and then written down in the first millennium AD, let's say, or perhaps earlier. After the Rig Veda, there's more, more aphorisms and thinking and hymns called the Upanishads, which were first committed to some kind of writing, perhaps around 700 BC. And it's full of thought, full of thinking about the most important things. And again, within the Rig Veda, within the Upanishads, there's a, a search or a sense of a singularity from which the universe must have sprung in the beginning. And of course, that ancient idea is still with us in the form of concepts like the Big Bang. Our scientists working out of the the Large Hadron Collider and all the rest of it are still focused upon a premise that there must have been a a central point, a a singularity, which began to expand, I I don't know, like a puffball in the dark, uh, containing within everything else, all of space, all of time, and what caused that Big Bang is beyond our reach. The point being that that idea of everything having come from next to nothing is an old one. And this idea of people visualising a, a tiny spark of something in, in the dark of nothingness, which becomes everything. So it's an old idea, and it's there. It's there in the, in the thinking in the, in the Indian subcontinent. So, there's a context. Well, in, in some, somewhere in northern India, maybe in Nepal, 
Siddhartha Gautama was born. Sometime around 600 BC, some of the accounts you'll read will give a specific date, like 566 BC, but there he is. He's born sometime around the middle of the first millennium before the birth of Christ. He was a prince, which is to say he was born into the warrior class. You know, you had the Brahmin, the priestly class being the, the, the superior caste, number one caste. Well, the warriors were immediately below them. The princely warriors were the, were the next, next in line, aristocrats to the, to the priests. Their symbolic role and their practical role was to defend, to defend society. Um, so Siddhartha is born in that caste. His mother would say later that at the time that she became pregnant with him, she, she dreamt that a white elephant had entered her side without causing her any pain. And that it was in the immediate aftermath of that dream that she learned that she was pregnant with the baby who would be Siddhartha. He's born into a loving family. He had a a very protective father who was so protective, according to the story, that he created a large walled garden around a palace. The idea being that Siddhartha Gautama would spend all of his life in there, safe, untouched by the eternal verities and the the vicissitudes of, of the outside world. And so Siddhartha lived like that into his teens and 20s and into his 30s. Uh, he became a husband and a, and a father. He was a married man with at least one child. But he grew frustrated with his confinement and he was preoccupied with the idea that there was something beyond his walls and he wanted to see what it was, so he, he, he left. He did a bunk. And soon thereafter, he began seeing some of the things that his father had hoped that he would not encounter. He saw an old man so he was confronted with the idea that it wasn't all a world of youth. He saw a dying man, and then eventually he saw a corpse, so that he was brought face to face with the unavoidable truth that everything ages, everything gets sick and dies, and then goes back into the the dust from which it came. It's not really clear whether he was upset or rattled by these encounters or not, but he next encounters a monk, a man who followed the, the path of asceticism, you know, leaving aside worldly comforts. And suitably inspired Siddhartha Gautama began to follow that path. For seven years, they say, putting himself through all kinds of physical hardship. The thinking of the monks in that part of the world was that the world around us is an illusion. It's not real. It's like the Matrix. And the way to get beyond the matrix, to see through that veil, involves depriving yourself of food and, you know, sleeping on rocks. This is where you get the notions of, you know, sleeping on beds of nails and, and so on. And, and the people putting themselves through all kinds of, of discomfort and, and suffering because the idea was that it would, it would strip away all of the illusion of, of the world around us and bring us face to face with what's really going on. Well, Siddhartha Gautama followed that way for seven years to try and get closer to reality. Eventually, he almost starved himself to death. He was so weak and he was rescued by a young woman who found him 
close to death and she gave him some kind of milky drink or some kind of soup uh, to begin with and then over a period of time she, she brought him back, she revived him, brought him back to health. And by the end of that experience, he had realised that there were extremes, that you know there was extreme luxury, pampered comfort such as he had known in his youth and the other extreme was the, was the self-inflicted hardship known to the monks. And so he had known both. And he decided that the better way, the middle way, lay between the two. It's what you'd say he's a sort of a centrist politician. <laughs> not, of, not of the right, not of the left, but finding the middle ground. A bit of a Lib Dem. <laughs> and so from that point on, he was on his way. He wandered. He wandered all over. He attracted a certain number of followers, even at that early stage. At some point, according to the to the legend of Buddha, he spent time sitting, meditating beneath the Bodhi tree. The Bodhi tree was the tree of enlightenment, some ancient tree. And he sat there for long enough. Bodhi is um, it's close to the Sanskrit bodhati, which means awake. It's also close to the Proto-Indo-European word bud, which means aware. And what he achieved, a moment came sitting beneath the tree when, as his followers subsequently described it, he woke up. He woke up to the true nature of reality. He saw through the illusion. And so they called him Buddha, which means the one who is awake. It's quite timely when everyone talks just now about woke and all the rest of it. Well, Buddha was awake. If the life that most of us experience is a dream, an illusion, not to be trusted, Buddha woke up from that dream. He realised fundamentally that life is suffering and that existence is an, is an endless round of birth and death that he called samsara. So we're, we're born... We live, we die, and we're born again. We live, we die, we're born again. On a hamster wheel, samsara. Which, you know, it's okay as far as it goes. But if you want off the hamster wheel, then you have to waken up to reality. Which is what Buddha believed he had done, and was what Buddha believed he could teach others to do. The final realisation that comes when reality is it's hard to express, especially here in the West. I don't, I don't know that we really have the vocabulary for it, but it's a reaching for nirvana. You'll all, everyone's heard of nirvana. Nirvana is a hard one to translate. It's a bit like the sound phew. That phew sound that you make when you're relieved that you've come to the end of some kind of stress. Phew. That's... Nirvana. Buddha taught everyone that, um, or he taught anyone who would listen, that the problem that we have with existence is that we desire. We want things. Everyone wants different things, but we have things in common. And we are driven by, and our life is effectively upset by desire. And some people, on, on realising that, try to stop desiring but Buddha taught that that's futile in itself because now instead of desiring, you're desiring to not desire. 
So you've put, you've put yourself back on the loop. So you have to accept. I think Buddhism is an acceptance as much as possible that you are what you are, that reality is just... Well, there's no continuation of the end of that sentence, I don't think. And if you, if you achieve that level of acceptance, you reach nirvana. And your existence can be blown out like a candle's flame. Gone forever. You become, by realising what you are, you can cease to be. And the story goes, after a long life, maybe 40 or 50 years of being awake, Buddha lay down between two trees and died. And his followers believed that he had lived and died many times across eternity, but that now he had accepted reality and so he was gone. Gone for good, never to return. He had spent the f- those years, 40, 45, 50 years, on an endless pilgrimage, on an endless walk, teaching about another concept that he called Dharma. A Dharma, another one, D-H-A-R-M-A, as it's spelt in using our, our alphabet. Difficult to translate again, but it has within it a notion of something like the truth. So he's teaching about Dharma the way things really are. And I would say that's a momentous moment. You know, a moment can be be ephemeral and brief, but we also talk about things being momentous, as in lasting forever, never to be forgotten. And I would say the notion, even just the possibility that at least one human awakened to the true nature of reality, that's a moment. There's a, an American physicist, cosmologist, back in the 60s and 70s, he was talking, amongst other things, about the nature of reality. And Nick Herbert suggested that our predicament, our species predicament, is that we are in a King Midas-like predicament. Now, King Midas is that figure of, of legend who everything he touched turned to gold. And including eventually his daughter. His daughter ran into his arms to be embraced and she was turned to gold. And Nick Herbert said that our predicament is the King Midas predicament in that everything we touch turns to solid matter. That we cannot experience or touch or feel the true texture of reality because everything we touch feels, you know, soft like skin, hard like steel. That's the illusion, that's our predicament, that as soon as we touch something, it becomes solid, which in reality nothing is. You know, if you, if you bring to bear a powerful enough microscope, so to speak, then you find that there are just atoms or, or similarly tiny particles essentially surrounded by nothing. And yet our experience of, of being in contact with all of that is of something solid. And Nick Herbert said, that's, that's where we're trapped. That's our predicament. That's how we experience reality. And that's not really how it is. So it's, it's mind-bending, mind-opening stuff. But when you think about, when you think about Buddha, you probably realise, even without realising it, that it, it resonates for us in the West. 
Because what have you got? You've got a story that involves a loving father who creates a protective garden to keep his child safe. Somewhere there's a tree of wisdom and time spent in the presence of that tree of wisdom took the child to some kind of adulthood, took them away from that childhood illusion and awakened them to what it was to live, to grow old and to die. You know, that, that idea of awakening to truth. Then there's a small group of followers who come to that awakened individual in search of some kind of wisdom. And, and ultimately in time, that one individual and the message passed on by his followers is taken up by millions and then billions of people. Now, that obviously resonates with those who are born in the Christian tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition, because you've got the Garden of Eden and you've got God placing his children inside that safe space and warning them how to stay safe and then being disobeyed and the children wakening up to some kind of adulthood and having to get on with what it is to, to grow old and die. Which I think is, well, it's, it's, it's interesting that at different ends of the world, people are telling each other stories that are echoes of one another. And you can take that analogy further. In 1666, 2,200 years after Buddha, Isaac Newton found himself in his mother's garden. He'd fled from university and come home because there was an outbreak of plague. So he sought safety in his mother's garden at Woolsthorpe Manor, by Grantham, actually, in Lincolnshire. And it was there, in that safety of that garden, that he saw the apple fall from the tree, which inspired him to contemplate gravity. And he recounted the story to William Stukeley. Uh, William Stukeley was a contemporary of, of Isaac Newton's, although younger. Stukeley was a, amongst many other things, he was a polymath, but he was, he was an archaeologist of sorts. He was one of the first people in the, in the relative, the modern era, to pay attention to places like Avebury. Uh, but he was a great man of letters, Stukeley, and it's Stukeley who claimed that he had sat with an older Isaac Newton and had Newton tell him the story of the apple falling from the tree and how he had wondered why did it fall straight down? Why didn't the apple fly up or go sideways? Why did the apple only fall straight towards earth? And he supposed that it was actually trying to fall towards the centre of the earth, towards the heart, towards the singularity. And for some reason, the sort of genius that makes me wonder why I even bother getting out of bed in the morning, that was enough to let Newton contemplate that all objects attract all other objects to a greater or lesser extent. So big objects attract everything around them, like the sun attracts the planets and holds them in place, and the earth holds the moon. And if you drop a spoon out of your hand or whatever, it falls towards the centre of the earth. Newton was somehow able to intuit all of that and to write the maths that explained it. Just by sitting in a garden under a tree, you know, he was enlightened in his own way. He understood that the attraction of an object was proportionate to its size. The bigger the object, 
you know, the, the greater the mass of the object, the more its power to attract. You know, it's all proportionate, but it's a pull towards a centre. It's the idea that everything is, is somehow being pulled towards one place. Uh, and so in that, there's, a, there's some kind of echo of Buddha's understanding of oneness, of a singularity, of one place to which everything is pulled. In any event, the, the religion that he came up with, that was a product of his thinking, Buddhism, is very simple. It's not like other religions. It has no God. There is no doctrine. There's no real book of rules. There are ideas, but there aren't commandments as such. All men and women are equal, according to Buddhism. And the castes were irrelevant. All the castes, regardless, from highest to lowest, all beings were equal, as far as Buddha and Buddhism were concerned. That was the message that spread. It became predominant in Asia. Ironically, ultimately, it was really overwhelmed and overtaken in India by Hinduism, which was there anyway. Buddhism is kind of like Hinduism stripped for export. It has a great deal of Hindu thinking within it, but it's a simplified form. It was also overtaken in India by Islam, eventually. But Buddhism remains, it's still there, it's still affecting the lives of millions, of billions of people. And for me, for me, the fact that even one person awoke to the idea of the true nature of reality is a moment worth remembering in the story of the world. It's fascinating how science and these ancient faiths overlap and they have similar thinking, isn't it? Yes, even thousands of years ago, without what we certainly without what we would regard as the scientific method, and without access to electron microscopes and and large hadron colliders or anything else, people of intellect were able to come up with the ideas. They were coming at them and arriving at them from all manner of different directions, but they were coming to the conclusions that were subsequently borne out by, by the scientific method. For the longest time, thinkers, philosophers, were trying to find the cause without a cause. You are caused by your parents, and your parents are caused by, and everything is caused by, and the earth is caused, what caused the earth to form? And then you work your way back to the Big Bang. Well, what caused the Big Bang? Well, we don't know. The answer to what caused the Big Bang seems to be just because. It seemed to be unavoidable. It seemed to be an inevitable consequence of the laws of physics. But philosophers have been trying to get to what they conceptualised as the cause without a cause. Something that was just there. It wasn't caused by anything. It wasn't the product of any sequence of events. It was just there. And that, that inevitably becomes God. Or you use other words to describe it, but when philosophers work their way back to a, something that causes everything else but does not in itself have a cause, they shrug their shoulders and call it God. And God's just there. But, you know, God, is it God? Is it, is it something else? Is it reality? There's something. That's the singularity. That's the point beyond which you cannot pass, that there's nothing before it and nothing caused it. 
It's just there. <laughs> it's mind-bending stuff, isn't it? Do you like grappling with thoughts like these? I do, I do. I like that. I think everyone, well, I think many people from time to time have a sense that what we're experiencing isn't necessarily real. And philosophers down through the ages, you know, we, you know the first philosophers we, we tend to talk about are people like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and, and all of their uh, intellectual descendants, and you know, and then and then coming all the way up, you know, Thomas Hobbes, Immanuel Kant, Kierkegaard, you know, all the way through. F- philosophers ultimately, traditionally, were asking questions about what it means to be, what it means to be alive, what is real, and. There have always been some of them, not all of them, but there has always been a line of philosophical thinking that says that we don't experience reality. We experience a kind of a second-rate, low-resolution... You know, the idea of of Plato's cave that people talk about, especially at the moment, you know, that that idea that that we all exist inside a, a darkened cave and we're facing a wall and there's a fire behind us. And something else is moving back and forth between us and the fire, and it's casting shadows, and we only see the shadows on the wall. That's all we see. And that most of us think that's reality. Most of us just accept those flickering shadows as being all there is. But then eventually somebody escapes from the cave, turns around and looks at the fire, climbs out of the cave and finds everything else, and goes back down into the cave and tries to persuade the people who are still looking at the shadows that that's not reality. And even so, confronted with what the person who's been outside the cave wants to say, most of the people continuing to watch the shadow play refuse to accept that there's anything wrong with that. And there has always been that idea of the, you know, the platonic, the forms, which are, you know, you know what a circle is. You know how to draw a circle. You know, you put a pin in a bit of paper with a string and and you, you can draw a circle. But no circle, even now, you cannot draw a perfect circle. Even the most perfect circle drawn by the most perfect computer, looked at closely enough, will be imperfect. The true circle exists in a realm we will never experience. That's where the form of the circle actually is. And that circle is perfect. And all we see are clumsy, imperfect shadows of the perfect forms. Now, not all philosophers subscribe to that line of thinking, but it is a line of thinking that what we are getting here is just a shadowy, secondary, low-resolution representation of what reality actually is. And then the question is, are you happier if you just accept the shadow play and don't give anything else a second thought? Or are you happier being confronted by the possibility that what you've been experiencing is just a shadow play? and that reality exists elsewhere, and you will never touch it anyway. You know, it's not as though you'll get to that reality. Are you made happier by knowing that that reality exists or not? You know, so these are, these are some of the questions that philosophers have been... Way before the time of Buddha, philosophers were asking themselves those questions. Philosophers whose names we don't know, because they weren't written down, but there have always been people that have thought those thoughts. And yes, I do find it very interesting to contemplate the possibility that reality is elsewhere, and that's what gives rise. You know that you know in a, in a in, you know in a recent relatively modern manifestation of that thinking, that's where you get the matrix from. 
and and even today, people like Elon Musk and the rest are toy around with the possibility that we're all just living in some kind of computer-generated game. <laughs> you know, that we've all just been conjured into being by some teenage boy sat somewhere <laughs> who's written some code. And that we are not really real and that none of this is real. That That thought goes around and around and around. Well, someone like Buddha, you know, Siddhartha Gautama, 600 years BC or whatever, sitting under his tree, the same thought occurred to him. This isn't real. It's all we've got, but it's not real. And in that moment of realising that it wasn't real, in some existential way he was able to blow out the candle's flame and stop doing it. It's an interesting thought. Two pillars in a vast civilization, Confucius and the Way. Rigid hierarchy, good behavior, respect for culture and for families. Duty, society and the greater good. The world as a living thing, one vast organism. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel, simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening. Have them write a review or do one yourself to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucien, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.